This isn't going to be good with this microphone so close. Please sing loud. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what needless forfeit. Oh, what needless grief we bear. All because we do not care. Everything to God in prayer. Lord, thank you for your presence here tonight. Lord, open our hearts to you. And Lord, open our minds to you. Lord, we ask that you would be here, speak to us, however you want to speak to us, God. And more than anything, guard us tonight with your love, with your protection. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Find somebody to say hi to, shake a hand. And you can find a seat. Well, the story is told about Albert Einstein. In the 1930s, he was touring around different campuses and had a chauffeur driving him to different places. And he was lecturing on his theories that had been proven true and... And of course, back then, there was, no, there was no TV, so nobody could visibly, when they, when they would come to a place, nobody knew if it was him or who was him. And, and the chauffeur, his chauffeur, had heard the speech so many times that they got to a new campus and he said, he said, I could give this speech. And Albert Einstein says, all right, I will introduce you as Albert Einstein and I will be your chauffeur. So they get to the next place and, and he introduces the chauffeur as being Albert Einstein. And, and sure enough, he gives the whole speech right on just exactly the way Albert Einstein gave it. And, but, there was, but there was a problem. Somebody raised their hand with a question. <laughs> And the question was about quantum physics and how you put the whole thing together and understand that. And the chauffeur goes like this and he says, you know what? He says, that question is so easy that even my chauffeur could answer. (laughs) Albert Einstein said this, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. As we talk tonight, and that is what we're going to do, is just, we're just going to talk about stuff. I want all of us to recognize 
that there are different ways of viewing how God created and that what it's great to have an opinion it's great to share your opinion but this is a non-essential exactly how God did it there's so much mystery around it that it's very important that we don't carry our view so strong that it divides the church this week I received several things one is uh, a book somebody left on my desk by Francis Collins and he is a theistic evolutionist. He is a strong Christian, was converted when he read Mere Christianity. And he, he was part of the Human Genome Project. And he believes in theistic, God-ordained evolution. And I, re- I received this as well. Ten evidences from science that confirm a young earth. Okay, so... and. You, you will find out tonight that both of these are not my view. But this should just at least illustrate to us our brothers and sisters have that are thinking, loving God people, Bible-believing people, have different opinions, and we just need to give room to breathe a little. And tonight, maybe I'm not going to change anybody's position, but maybe at least we could understand each other's positions a little better. And, and it's going to cause us to think about these things because this is, this is a very important issue. All right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters And let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth And the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. The Bible says that the glory of God is to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search them out. Tonight, we want to search out the truth. Wherever it exists, we want to look and we're going to look at different ways of looking at the Bible. We're going to look at geology and what has actually been found in in the fossils. And what we're after without bringing any agenda to this thing is is what is the truth? It's very important when we talk about science 
that we make a distinction between facts that scientists have uncovered and the what what I would call the faith of scientists or simply world views that scientists often have. And sometimes it's not so easy to make that distinction. So I want to start by a couple of facts that have been proven at some level anyway by, by scientists. Um, first, microevolution. Microevolution is s- small changes within a species or within a kind that allow it to survive. Microevolution has been proven to be true, that there is enough variation in DNA that, that animals are able to survive different hostile climates. Um, it was microevolution, for instance, that Darwin observed on the Galapagos Islands. He observed that there were 15 different types of finches, and he made the conclusion that these finches all had one common ancestor that was also a finch, and that from time to time, adjustments were made, and there was enough variables at different times to survive that finches changed and became different finches. Microevolution. Of course, the easiest examples to understand today would be with antibiotics. You take antibiotics and they kill all of the germs. Except the problem is they don't kill all of the germs. Some of the germs, there's enough variation in DNA or a mutation in DNA that some of those germs are immune to the antibiotics and those are the ones that survive. And they don't just survive, but they reproduce. And pretty soon, you've got a whole other germ that the antibiotics can't touch. It's, it's, a, it's a different germ. It lacks this trait, um, it, or it, it has the trait of immunity to the antibiotics. And so they caution you on how to, to use um, antibiotics. Same with pesticides. Farmers use pesticides to kill aphids. Um, so that you put the pesticide and it kills all the aphids. Except it doesn't kill all the aphids because there are some aphids, there's just enough variation that are immune to the pesticides. And so those are the ones that survive. Then they reproduce. And pretty soon you have a, an aphid that is immune to the pesticide. So they have to keep changing pesticides because the, of this variation in DNA that allows the survival of the fittest. So microevolution is proven science. So you can't just say, I don't believe in evolution. Because small-scale evolution within a species is proven science. Okay? And the second thing that um, science, I believe, and some believe, have proven is the age of the earth. Scientists today believe the, the earth is very old. The scientific community, except by people of faith who interpret the Bible to say that the earth is only 6,000 years old, um, is in agreement on this. It started in the 
1700s, there was a guy named Georges Cuvier from France who discovered extinctions. And he, he said, hey, there are as many animals that have gone extinct than now live on the earth. The, 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 the fossil record is packed with extinctions. And that what the fossil record shows is catastrophes in the past that have left a lot of animals extinct. And he was the first guy to say that the earth was millions of years old. And for it, he was, he's known today as the father of modern geology. A light from the farthest star in the Milky Way gallery takes 60,000 years to get to earth. Um, if the universe was only 6,000 years old, we would not be seeing that star. We wouldn't be seeing it for 54 more thousand years. There are, star, there are whole galaxies that are 60 million light years away. There's, there's one star that is 100 million light years away. If, that, if it hadn't been there 100 million years ago, we would not see it today. We, we, if, it, if, the, if the universe was only 6,000 years old, you wouldn't be able to see it. The United States Department of Isotope Geology gives the five main reasons that scientists believe that the earth is old based on the radiometric dating of minerals in rocks. There are... 40 different minerals that all give the same basic date of how old the earth is, which is about 4.6 billion years old. <clears throat> so the, scient the scientific community um, believes this. Young earth creation scientists have fought a courageous fight for the Bible. And if they are right... Um, then the rest of the scientific community is just plain wrong. And we, we will talk about that later. Um, the difficulty with this argument of a young earth, whenever you get into an argument about a young earth with uh, somebody who believes in what we're going to talk about in just a moment, macroevolution, is you're just in the wrong argument. You are in an argument, there's no way you're going to win. You're going to just have to come back to because the Bible says so. And all, all of the evidence is going to be on their side. Some of the leaders in the intelligent design movement were saddened by the recent debate. Um, Ken Ham debated Bill Nye. Bill Nye was Mr. Science in the 90s and they debated at the Creation Museum in early February, Ken Ham is a young earth creationist. And of course, the intelligent design guys are voting for Ken Ham. They want him to do good. They, 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 even though they're, they disagree on the age of the earth with Ken Ham, he's the Bible guy. He's the God guy. And so they wanted him to do good. And, and, but what happened in the debate is, the, is Bill Nye got him to debate on the age of the earth. And you're, you're not going to win that. And so... All of the arguments that could have made that, that, that are very weak in the macroevolution argument were, were not made. And um, so if, 
If you believe the earth is young, or you believe the Bible teaches that the earth is young, we'll talk about that later. We're, we're going to talk about each one of the theories a little later. All right, so here's what science scientists have proposed today. They have proposed that macroevolution, macro means large-scale evolution, large-scale, microevolution was small-scale within a species, a species' ability to change. Macroevolution says all living things have a common ancestor, and evolution produced all the species, that everything evolved, it all started in a primordial swamp, and everything evolved from one single cell, all plants, all animals, and eventually mankind. And get all, so, so they define macroevolution as simply this, microevolution over a long period of time. And if you have enough time, Microevolution can produce macroevolution. And that is what is being taught in our universities today as the mechanism of, of why all things are as they are, is they have happened through a process of evolution. And uh, we'll talk about Darwin's theory in just a moment. All right, so this is accepted as uh, scientific fact on at most universities and defended very strongly and anybody that goes against this is clearly not smart, clearly is not scientific um, but there are some serious, serious problems with macroevolution. I want to talk about three of them right now. The first, the first challenge and these are scientific challenges to macroevolution, is the lack of transitional fossils. You, we can't do an experiment to find out how we got here. You can't run an experiment to find out how man got here, how animals got here. So scientifically, you can't run that experiment. Just like in a court of law, they can't run an experiment to find out if the person is innocent or guilty. So they do the next best thing. They try to recreate history. And what they do is they bring in eyewitnesses. They bring in people that were there. And of course, if you're a lawyer, you, it's, it's not enough to have a theory. You've got to have actual witnesses that were there. And it helps your case immensely if you have more than one witness. Well, there's only one witness of the earth's past. And that is the fossil evidence. There are five main arguments for macroevolution. Four of them are purely theoretical. It's only this one is the, is the paleon, paleontology is the study of fossils. So the fossil record is the only one that could be proven true or proven false. Now it's interesting because when Cuvier first came out with extinctions, there was a guy that he debated with, this is in the 1700s, named Lamarck, who was trying to teach the, that the species evolved. And Kuvier also record a series of catastrophes 
and a series of new creations, there's absolutely no evidence that the species evolved. So, in the, 18th, in the 19th century, Darwin also picked up this theory of evolution. Of course, in 1859, he wrote Origin of the Species. And he proposed a theory, even though he knew it was contradictory to the, contradictory to the fossil record. Here's what he says in the Origin of the Species. All of such intermediate links. Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be argued against my theory. The people that were against his theory originally were not the pastors and the theologians. It was, it was the geologists. They were 100% unanimously against his theory because of the fossil record. His solution to the lack of fossils was twofold. One, fossils are very rare. Every animal does not leave a fossil. You have to have a fossil. An animal has to die quickly and be covered by mud to leave a fossil. So fossils don't give the full picture of the past. They only give little snapshots. And so one... The fossil record to start with is very incomplete. And two, we've really only started looking in the fossil record. And as time goes on, as we uncover more and more fossils, it will show this chain. And that is, of course, fair. That's, that's what science does. It makes a theory. It says, here's how I'm going to test the theory. And then it makes the conclusion after it's been tested. That brings us to... Stephen Jay Gould. Um, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge, both Harvard professors. Niles Eldridge went on to become the uh, top paleontologist at the American Museum for Natural History. They made a theory in 1972 um, called punctuated equilibrium. Of evolutionary theory where he, he vehemently defended his theory he was, uh, just so we know that we're talking about a scholar in 2001 named by the Library of Congress as one of the 83 living legends. He was a professor and he was the leading voice for evolution for 40 years. Why, why is, are his credentials so important? This guy knew the fossil record. Him and his partner, Niles Eldridge, knew the fossil record better than any scientist, any geologist alive. And they said, after 110 years of searching the fossil record, the fossil record is marked by two things. Number one, sudden appearance. And what that means is this. When an organism appears in the fossil record, it appears suddenly fully formed. That's one. The second thing it's marked by is stasis. Stasis simply means this, that once it has appeared in the fossil record, it remains unchanged in the fossil record until it goes extinct. This is the state of the fossil record. It is marked by sudden appearance and stasis. So they said Darwinism is wrong. 
Darwinism, which, which predicted this chain of fossils, is wrong. There aren't transitions. And so they made a new theory called punctuated equilibrium. And, and what it said was this, that in the, in the earth, in the past, there have been a number of catastrophes. And when those catastrophes happen, there are punctuations of evolution. And when a species changes hey, these little laboratories, it changes until it's got a, a new species that's survivable. And then equilibrium sets in and it spreads to the general population. Okay? So there's these punctuations of evolution that happen not in the main po- There's no evolution in the main population. It happens in these little laboratories on the fringes. And it's quick evolution and once it happens, then, it, because it can survive, it, it passes to the whole population. Punctuated equilibrium. This, this was the new theory. This is the new mechanism by which we evolved. Now, you're going to notice something about this theory. We now have a theory of evolution which cannot be disproven by the fossil record because the fact that we find no fossils is exactly what this theory predicts. And so you end up with the emperor with no clothes. And uh, how big is this problem? Here's what, here's what uh, Gould said. He said the most puzzling fact of the fossil record is the extreme rarity of transitional forms. <clears throat> He's, uh, Niles Eldridge says, we paleontologists have said that history of life supposes the story of gradual adaptive change all the while really knowing that it does not. Gould said that with his research and his um, theory He said, this is the first news that has come to biologists that we don't have the fossils. Till this point, the biologists have have been going on and all of science had been going on, we have the fossils. And finally, they came out and they said, guys, there aren't any fossils. There are not transitions. There are over 60 million fossils in the British Museum, the British Museum of of Natural History. It's the largest fossil collection in the world. Not one of them is purported to be a transitional link. Colin Patterson, the senior paleontologist at the British Museum for many, many years, wrote a book called Evolution. And somebody sent him a letter and said, why aren't there any pictures of the transitions and uh, about how helpful it would be if there were, were pictures of the transition or he would, and here's what he wrote back. I fully agree with your comments on the lack of, du- of direct illustration of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I knew of any transition, transitional fossil, transitions, fossil or living, I certainly would have included them. You suggest that an artist should be used to visualize such transformations. But where would he get his information from? I could not honestly provide it. And if I were to leave it to artistic license, would that not mislead the reader? Gradualism is a concept I 
believe in, not just because of Darwin's authority, but because my understanding of genetics seems to demand it. Yet, Gould and the American Museum people are hard to contradict when they say there are no transitional forms. So how did this theory take off without any fossils? Here's what happened. He wrote the book, made the theory in 1859. And in 1868, a fossil was discovered named Archaeopteryx. Archaeopteryx is a strange bird. It's, it's a bird that has claws on its wings and teeth in its bill. And uh, it's, it seemed like the missing link. It, it seemed like it was between reptile and bird and the, the Archaeopteryx and there are six of these they have found now. They're in the British Museum, they got a whole room for the Archaeopteryx. And because of the power of this one fossil, the scientific community all shifted over and said, yes, Darwin was right. This is, this is right. So what do you think about Archaeopteryx? Isn't that, a, isn't that a missing link? Here's the problem with Archaeopteryx. And... Gould and uh, Colin Patterson all acknowledge this. Archaeopteryx isn't an in-between. It's a species. It's fully formed. It's not half-formed teeth or half-formed bill or half-formed tail or half-formed claws. It is a fully formed, strange, but it is a species fully formed. It's the sudden appearance thing, again. Very much like the duck-billed platypus. The duck-billed platypus seems to be between reptile and mammal, and it's got attributes of both, but it is a fully formed species. It's not becoming something. Here's the difficulty with what, what we should see if the theory was true. Before you can have a beaver in the fossil record, for, for Darwin's theory to be true, you have to have 10,000 almost beavers. It has to have become a beaver over a long, long process because these are little micro-mutations. These are the smallest little gains that it makes over time. And, and so the fossil record should be loaded mainly with chains. Not, it shouldn't be mainly species. It should be mainly these chains leading to the next thing. Yet... The fossil record shows nothing like that, nor do we view that. And Darwin noticed this. He said, if the theory is true, that creation should be a mess. Why, is it, why are the fe- species so fixed? Why aren't there a bunch of in-between animals running around? This is a tremendous problem for um, evolution. The biologists who now lead the way, Stephen Jay Gould is dead now, have just put these things out of their side, out of their minds, and they've gone back to Darwinism without the fossils. Second problem or difficulty, scientific difficulty for macroevolution is that of reproduction. I'm just going to read a paragraph to you. The amazing complex, radically different, yet complementary reproductive systems of the male and female must have completely 
and independently evolved at each stage at about the same time and place. Just a slight incompleteness in only one of the two would make both reproductive systems useless and the organism would become extinct. All that means is this. It's not enough to evolve a male. You could have a billion years and evolve a male and you got a human being. Wow, you evolved a male. But if you don't have a female evolving at exactly the same time and live exactly and end up in the same place at the same time, then all of that evolution is going to be wasted because it can't reproduce. So you have to have a male and you have to evolve a female. Now, just by evolution's own rules, a female's reproductive system is way more complicated than a male's. Therefore, it should take way longer to evolve. Now, so you've got, you've got, you've got to believe this is evolving, this is evolving, same time, same place, so that they can have sex and reproduce. You have to believe that about all the animals. It's a lot to believe. So when I was first lecturing on the campus on evolution, I was asked by the university group to come down and speak on evolution. And I had purpose that I was not going to be embarrassed on campus. So I called the, I called the geology department at the UW and I said, hey, I'm speaking on campus on evolution. I want to run my speech past some of your guys. Who, who can you get me? And she's like, who is this? I'm like, this Tom Flaherty from Mad City Church. She said, I used to go there. She said, yeah, I know Mad City. I used to go there. She said, I, we've never had anybody, we've never had a pastor call the, call the geology department before. She said, I'll find somebody for you. And so she set me up. She set me up with an appointment and I went in and their representative to the community for geology. And I said, uh, I said, this is, this is what I'm going to say. And I went through the whole thing and I got, I got this, I got to this part and she had brought a student in that was majoring in, in uh, biological evolution or something like that. And, and when I got to this part about sexual reproduction, he got all animated. His name was George. He got all animated and he said, he said, it's not that hard to imagine. He said, there are asexual animals and And if you had a population, if you can imagine a population large enough of asexual animals over enough time, you could produce this. And all you have to do is imagine, and he said, imagine the third time. I said, George, you can stop right there. I said, George, this is America. You can believe whatever you want to believe. But that's the third time you've used the word imagine. And all I'm saying is, it takes faith to believe what you're believing. It does take imagination. You have, to, you have to imagine a lot. And what's going on right now is you're making our young people who believe the Bible, you're making them feel stupid because they have faith. And he, and he, he got a big smile on his face. And he said, nobody should be felt to make should be called stupid or made to feel stupid because of what they believe. The third difficulty for evolution, for macroevolution, is the difficulty of DNA. And we're going we're gonna to watch a little video on DNA. It takes about two seconds, maybe two minutes. 
picks up after a while. It starts slow. That's the, that's the primordial swamp. The Evidence Bible is a... You hear this one a lot. Science has proven evolution, therefore evolution is true. Since evolution is true and Christians don't believe it, then Christians don't believe science turn and they aren't rational mat? people. Really, let's put that claim to the test. First off, evolution in the sense that things change is evident. No rational person disputes that. Therefore, rational Christians believe it. We can observe change. But evolution in the sense that life came from non-life and then that life began to randomly generate new genetic information and over time it eventually produced humans is something entirely different and something that quite honestly doesn't hold up against science. In other words, evolution in the sense of molecules to man is not scientifically plausible and therefore should not be viewed as scientific fact. Quite honestly, it is in great opposition to science, that is, observational science, the kind of science we can test and repeat and use our five senses to understand. Science demonstrates that over time, living organisms lose genetic information. They don't gain it. That same science demonstrates that life doesn't arise from non-life. Hey, Follow along from? if you would. Fact one, there is no known observable process by which new genetic information can be added to an organism's genetic code. None. That pretty much refutes evolution right away because there's no way to go from a fish to an amphibian without adding new information, right? If living organisms cannot produce new genetic information, how can anything gradually change into something of higher intelligence or form or complexity? That is, how can anything evolve from an amoeba to a man without adding new genetic information? The answer, of course, is that it can't. Plain and simple. Now, some have speculated and they have imagined all kinds of things and they brought in artists to produce creative renderings based on guesses and they have been successful in telling a very convincing story that humans evolved from ape-like creatures. But those are just drawings, people. They're just stories. But what we really observe is humans are humans and apes are apes. Now, if fact one buried evolutionary thinking deep into the Precambrian soil, this next fact, fact two, tosses so much sediment on it that not even the greatest team of paleontologists with the latest subterranean gizmo could dig up the remains. Check this out. Never, again, never has it been observed that life can come from non-life. So here are two major scientific evidences against evolution. I reiterate for clarity, life has never been observed to come from non-life, and there is no known, observable process by which new genetic information can be added to the genetic code of an organism. So molecules to man evolution doesn't really make scientific sense. Yet we are all here, and life is all around us in various forms. Although evolution cannot account for this, the Bible can. The Bible reveals that the all-powerful, all-knowing, supernatural God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, and all life according to its kinds, that is, each with its own set of genetic information. So, again, what the Bible reveals makes sense of what we see and understand. Evolution does not. Enough said. You know, we, we, probably, we probably could have saved the whole night and just watched that video. Um, Darwin had a mechanism called natural selection. And it simply said this, that... Species, nature will randomly select those that survive. In other words, conditions are going to come. A lot of a species might get wiped out, but the strongest survive and those that survive reproduce. And so those that have the best traits 
are going to survive. That's called natural selection. And it it does explain the survival of the fittest. I think that all makes scientific sense to us. Why that germ that survived had the genetics to survive and, and why that, uh, the aphid that could survive, it had the genetics to survive. We understand that, that just because of, of its specific DNA, it could survive when others were wiped out. But what natural selection can't explain is the arrival of the fittest. It can explain the survival, but it can't explain the arrival. And let me explain this. First, Life has never come from non-life. The, the single cell is astonishing. DNA, which is, is, well, Francis Collins called it the language of God. Where did DNA come from? DNA is, is a library, libraries of information. It is amazing how complex it is. Where did the double helix DNA strand come from? And scientists have looked at this problem and, and, and have recognized this is a huge problem. Now, Darwin didn't have the problem because he wrote the book Origin of the Species. And guess what was the one thing he didn't cover in that book? The Origin of the Species. He said, he said, he said there might be a God. I'm not, even, I'm not even saying that. It's just not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the New Testament because I don't know how life started, but... Here's the mechanism once it started. If there was a God, he has abandoned this. And this natural selection, natural means not supernatural. With no aid of divine help, things evolved naturally. So, but today's scientists want to explain everything. So they want to explain how did that first DNA, first cell, um, where did it come from? And most of them have given up and gone to a new theory, and I'm not kidding you. This is, this is in the textbooks. It's called panspermia. And it says this, life didn't start on this planet. It started somewhere else. And it landed on this planet by a meteorite. And so, and all that buys them is some more years because 4.6 billion is the earth and 3.8 billion is the universe. And so that gives them a few more years that somewhere else life could, well, the odds, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, if, if, if you've got those difficulties forward evolving on earth, you're still going to have them anywhere else. But there's another problem with DNA and the arrival of the fittest. As our video showed, there's no way to add information. There's no way to account for information to be added. A mutation takes information away. Or it can rearrange present information. But the complexity of a human being and the information necessary for the human eye versus a tadpole is very different. It takes tons more. And there's no way to evolve information. There's no way to get more information genetically. This is scientifically known. In the 1980s, a guy named Anthony Flew, who was the world's leading atheist for 40 years, he debated C.S. Lewis back in the 50s. God versus atheism. The world's leading atheist in the, in the late 70s, he was debating a Christian apologist on campuses, that, and they became good friends. And he said, uh, he said this, th- I can't 
I, I, I'm having trouble arguing on, on this specific argument. Would you give me your reference material? And he started reading about DNA. And in the mid-80s, he became a theist. He wrote his last book. It's called There Is a God. And he was, he was on, it was on USA Today. He was on every major talk show because he recanted atheism. And what he said got him. And, and they're like, how could you leave your principles? He says, no, no, no. My principle was always Plato's principle. Follow the evidence where it leads you. This is where the evidence led me. He said, because of the information in DNA, and because there is no way to add information, there's no way for it to evolve, because DNA is intelligence, only intelligence could make it. I'll just give you one quote from Anthony Flew before we move on here. What I think the DNA material has done is shown that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements together. The enormous complexity by which the results were achieved looked to me like the work of intelligence. So those are, those are three difficulties, scientific difficulties. Fossils, sexual reproduction, and DNA. All right, we're moving on to point three, which is how do we... And by the way, these, I've got all of these notes are posted online with the talk so you can get every quote every reference it's all there for you so just go to the website how do we reconcile the bible and science every theory has to reconcile both every bible believing theory so let's look at a few of these theories one of them is the young earth theory in this theory all of creation including heaven the angels and earth happened in 144 hours approximately 6,000 years ago The majority of modern scientists who believe in an old earth are simply wrong. Each of the radiation-based dating techniques, um, mainly C14 for fossils uh, or things recently alive, carbon dating is for things that were alive, and potassium, argon, and uranium lead for minerals and rocks that can date much longer times, assume a steady, unchanging rate of radiation and radiation loss in the past. It's all based on a formula, how they figure out the date. It's based on the radiometric material that's there now compared to what would have been there then. And uh, their point is a worldwide flood changed the atmosphere of this earth dramatically as water broke forth in volcanic eruptions from below and by the rain above, creating a whole new biosphere and most of the fossils that we have today. So you can't trust the dating methods. They would argue that the geological chart of the ages is a myth made up with evolution in mind. The geologic column is not a neatly ordered thing, but varies depending on where you test it. Even the order that is suggested and found in many places, up to a third of the earth, more or less, reveals the column, could simply reflect the way things settled during the flood. Plants in the bottom, fish and birds second, animals swimming, uh, running to higher places, and humans floating on things and using survival techniques on top. Um, They cite many evidences for a worldwide flood, They uh, give the evidence of trees that are through many, many layers of the earth's crust. One tree that's through 10 layers of the earth's crust that supposedly was millions and millions and millions of years. Well, trees can only be 5,000 years old. So all of it could only be 5,000 years old. And that would have been the result of the flood making that very quickly. 
One of the main scriptures young earth people use to support their position is Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Um, There it is, as clear as can be. God made everything in six days, and the Sabbath day is the seventh, and that's what the Bible says. Difficulties. Um, scientifically, the, 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 when challenged with old earth arguments, um, Bill Nye asked Ken Ham, is there any argument that I could, is there any evidence that I could ever show you that would convince you that the earth is old? And Ken Ham said, no, there's no evidence because I believe it's young because the Bible says it's young. The presupposition that the Bible teaches a young earth means I can't see any other, I can't see evidence because the earth has to be young because God says that it's young. Um, scripturally, their position maintains that Satan and a third of the angels fell somewhere between day seven, when God had, day six, God said everything is good, and the time Adam and Eve fell from grace. So you've got a massive fall of the angels in, in really just a few years after they were created for Satan to become Satan and be in the serpent before Adam and Eve uh, had children. So you just got, I mean, Seth was born at when they were 130 years old. So it's way before that because Cain and Abel came first. We don't know when they were born, but Seth was born when they were 130. So it's, it's probably, I don't know, just a few years. You got a major fall. And my difficulty with it is Jesus said in John 8, 44, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. I believe that Satan was already Satan at the beginning of this creation. And this would contradict that. This would say that Satan was not Satan at the beginning. He was Lucifer. He was not a murderer from the beginning. He was created an angel. And so I have a little issue there. Um, also, the word asa is t- means to make. When it says that the Lord made the heavens and the earth in the sea in six days. The word asa is different than the word for create, which is bara, B-A-R-A. The word bara means to create, oftentimes out of nothing. It can mean to make something new out of pre-existing materials. But asa always means to make something out of pre-existing materials. It's, it's, it's translated 74 different ways. And this is part of the problem with Hebrew words is they're used, there's only a few words. There's like 10,000 total words and they have to be used in many different ways. And the main way that asa is used is to do or to work. And so God worked on the earth. And during those six days, what do we find? He did make an earth during the six days, didn't he? He made the water all go to one place and dry land appeared and he called the dry land earth on day three. And he did make a heaven during the six days, didn't he? He had the waters above, he separated from the waters beneath, this is on day two, and he called the atmosphere heaven. So he made a heaven and he made an earth and when the dry land appeared, he called the others, the, where the water gathered, he called seas. So, he, so during those six days, he made a heaven he made an earth and he made the seas. 
But none of it was, was out of nothing. It was all, it was all already there. And he, he, he made it. He worked on it. He molded it from pre-existing materials. So I don't think Exodus 20.11 qualifies. And then finally, they insist that Yom is a 24-hour period. That, that because it says evening and morning with Yom, and there was one day, evening and morning with Yom has to mean 24-hour period. But there's a problem with that. If you believe the sun was not made until day four, then how, how can you say that day one has to be a solar day if the sun isn't even there? How can you limit Yom? Anyway, okay. Now, I want to be very clear. I appreciate the work of creation scientists and the bold stand they've taken on the authority of Scripture. However, I feel when they are dogmatic about a young earth, they are divisive to the body of Christ. Henry Morris's statement that, here's Henry Morris, who's the founder of, of the young earth creation theory. If the old earth is true, then Christianity is not true. That's his statement. I find that statement ridiculous. If, if the earth is old, then it simply means that Henry Morris's interpretation of Genesis was wrong. It doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. Um, it's very important to not be a bully, a Bible bully, with your position. That's what's going on in academia. They are bullies about macroevolution. They are, they are using intimidation on other scientists, on other areas of science. You need to believe the way we believe. And this should not be in the body of Christ. It was very sad to me to see, I watched a, a, a John Ankerberg's show, and it was um, a young earth scientist debating Hugh Ross, who is day-age theory. And this, this young earth guy was so dogmatic that he could not acknowledge that Hugh Ross was even a Christian because he didn't believe the way that he believed. And it, it, it broke my heart. I think it broke God's heart. And so I love the young earth guys. I've gotten a lot from them. But we need, we need to have a little humility with our position because there are other positions. All right, day-age theory. This is the view that says what Moses saw were God-sized days, not 24-hour periods. Um, And I just said it, the word yam or day is used not just for 24-hour periods, but the day of the Lord that that extends thousands of years. It can mean in in the day that God created uh, heaven and earth, which is speaking of those six days, or, or made heaven and earth, speaking of those six days, the d- day is larger than one 24-hour period. And their argument is, if God didn't make the sun until the fourth day, then why can't each of those days be God-sized days? They use the geologic column to show plants came first, which is just what it shows then, fish and birds, followed by animals. Why can't each one of those days be a creative day? This is a non-evolutionary position where God created something new every million, billion years, whatever. Um, Now, some believe 
And in this position, Adam and Eve are still real people. That when God created people, he created Adam and Eve, and they were in his image, and he happened to create them last. And that's just, of course, what the fossil record shows. There are other people that believe in theistic evolution, which is very kind of close to day age, except they believe that God used evolution. Now, there's a large group that believes this. I've already mentioned Francis Collins, the Catholic Church, the Pope believes this, uh, Blackhawk believes this. They just had a whole seminar on theistic evolution. In this, in this belief, it is simply this, that God used evolution. He used natural selection. God, God saw in his perfect foreknowledge that he could just create this one thing and within this DNA, everything else would come without him having to be involved in any way, shape, or form. And random natural selection would produce all of the species. And then um, they would be very careful to say, but human beings are different because God breathed into them. And the difference is not in our physical makeup, but in our spiritual makeup. That we're 99% same DNA as monkeys, but we have the life of God in us. And we make moral judgments and we have judges and courts that monkeys don't have. And it's because of the breath of God in us. All right, so difficulties in the, the day age... Um, Although yam can mean a 24-hour period, um, in the context of Genesis 1, accompanied by the phrase, there's evening and there was morning, which seems to me to mean a solar day. I think the sun was already there. I think God created the heavens and the earth at verse 1, and that the heaven is clearly there, which is why it is a solar day. Two, Genesis 1.30, it says that God gave every green plant for food to everything that has breath of life in it. Animals didn't start out eating each other. People didn't start out eating animals. That sin came into the earth through Adam, and that's when the curse came on all of creation, not God creating through death, and that, that through, really, evolution is creating through death. <clears throat> Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death came to all men because all sinned. And I don't believe in macroevolution for all the reasons that I already gave you, so we don't, need to, we don't need to go into why I'm not a theistic evolutionist. All right, and then we go to uh, gap theory which I talked about on Sunday morning, but I, I want to talk about it just a little. And I want to talk about the difficulties of gap theory as well, just to be fair, because this is mine, my theory. Um, gap theory simply maintains that there is a gap between Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was, is the Hebrew word haya, which can be translated became. The NIV scholars that wrote the NIV, gave it as a possible um, word. It's the first asterisk in the NIV Bible is or possibly became. 
And the next words, I believe, are the keys. Tohu vabohu. Um, formless and void. Those two words together are only used two other times. One in, once in uh, Isaiah 34, verse 11, and the other time in Jeremiah 4, verse 23. Both times are God's desolating judgment on rebellion. Once is on Edom, the one in Isaiah. One is on Israel in Jeremiah. This is the third time it's used. I believe the earth became tohu vabohu as a result of God's desolating judgment on Lucifer and the angelic kingdom that was on this earth. I believe that when God said he made all things very good, that everything he had made was very good. But I think that there was a leftover from the last earth called Satan. And he was already there. He was already in the garden. He was already the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, meaning our beginning, not his beginning. I believe there was an angelic kingdom on this earth. I believe Lucifer had a throne. It was an earthly throne. Jesus called him the prince of this world. I don't think he got that distinction by deceiving Adam and Eve. I think he was the fallen prince of this world. I think he was the original prince of this world. And I think that he ruled on this earth In Isaiah 14, it says that he wanted to ascend his throne to God's throne. He had a throne, and it says in Revelation chapter 12 that when he fell, a third of the angels um, followed him. All right. Uh, Why do I believe that something happened to the earth, that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, that there was actual creation there? And that something had happened to the earth, that it became tohu vabohu and water was covering the earth? Because in verse 10, when God makes dry land appear, he calls dry land earth. God's definition of earth is dry land. Doesn't it make sense that the earth he made in Verse 1 was dry land. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, i.e. dry. He made the earth dry. Something had happened to it that it was covered with water. Okay. Uh, On day 4, on on day 2... He doesn't create the earth. He moves the water around and land appears. On day four, I believe that he disperses the cloud cover completely, that he began to disperse in verse one when light first appeared. It says in Job 38 that he surrounded, sometime after creation, he surrounded the earth with dark clouds. And I believe this is the state we find the earth in. Darkness was on the face of the earth. Darkness was not filling the universe. The sun was already there. The stars were already there. It was on the face of the earth. I believe as a result of this judgment, there were deep clouds. When God said, let there be light on day one, I believe the, the clouds dispersed enough for light to hit earth. I believe the whole thing is, is given from earth's perspective. I believe that first day was a solar day because it says there was evening and there was morning one day. To have an evening and a morning means the sun is already there. It says that the sun was given to separate light from darkness. And you'll notice on day four, when it talks about the sun, moon, and the stars, they were given to separate light from darkness. They were already there on day one. I believe on day four, 
Once again, the word asa is used, not borrow, not create, but made. He made them. He worked on them. He cleared the clouds and brought forth the stars, the sun, and the moon so that um, people could see them. All right. Uh, Let me give you another translation of asa is to bring forth. Um, So here's one translation of day four. Then God brought forth two great lights, the greater light to illumine the day and the lesser light to illumine the night. Okay, done. Difficulties. The problem with this theory, problem with gap theory, is it doesn't answer many questions. Well, Pastor Tom, were there animals on on the early earth? Biblically, we don't know. Well, when did the angels fall? We don't know. Um, did they fall over time? Did they fall all at once? We don't know. You, you are left not knowing a lot of things. You have to be okay with not being able to explain everything. I believe the problem that science, scientists have gotten into with macroevolution is they've tried to explain everything. I believe the problem the young earth people get into is they're trying to explain too much. There's just a lot of stuff we don't know. And biblically, I think we get into trouble when we try to explain stuff that God hasn't told us. All right, I'm going to end with this. How does the geologic record reconcile with gap theory? Cuvier found in the fossil record more than one catastrophe in the earth's past that left these animals that had no relation to the present animals on the earth. When Darwin made his theory, he needed a different geology than catastrophism. That's what Cuvier's was called. That there's been a number of catastrophes and new creations. That's what he called them. And he said, there's nothing that we can observe today that can predict what happened in the past or to predict the future. All we can do as geologists, is observe what has been. Cuvier also said that the most recent catastrophe is about 5,000 years ago, and it was a flood. Darwin needed a different geology, so he came, he read a guy named Charles Lyell, who wrote a book called The Principles of Geology, and he taught something different than catastrophism. It's called uniformitarianism. It simply meant this. You could observe today what's happening today, and you could multiply that to the past to explain the past, and you could multiply it to the future because everything is just how it is right now. It's uniform. So what's happening today happened back then and will happen in the future, and this gives science the power to predict. Charles Lyell is the guy that made the geologic column. Here's what Gould, Stephen Jay Gould, and remember, this is not a creation guy. This is an evolutionist the top guy in the world. Here's what he said about about Lyle. To circumvent the literal appearance of geologic catastrophes, Lyle imposed his imagination upon the evidence. The geologic record, Lyle argued, is extremely imperfect and we must interpolate into what we can reasonably infer but cannot see. Gould said this, I know of no greater irony in the history of science 
than the inverted posthumous reputations awarded to Lyle and Cuvier for their supposed positions on objectivism in science. And all that really, that meant is this, is scientists today call Lyle objective and say that Cuvier was imaginative or imposed faith on it. And he said, he said that the ironic thing is it couldn't be more opposite. All Cuvier did was observe what was actually there. And it was Lyle that used his imagination to fill in all of the blanks that you could infer. Gould says this, yet Darwin's defense was so successful that it took over a century of no research. It led to over a century of no research on mass extinctions. Merely to suggest catastrophe was apostasy. For a hundred years, it was illegal as a scientist. You didn't get any money. You didn't get any funding. You didn't get anybody patting you on the back if you saw catastrophe in the, in the fossil record. You couldn't because the theory was uniformitarianism. This all ended in 1979. Oh, thank you, bro. God bless you. How come none of you thought of this? In 1979, a guy named Walter Alvarez found iridium, which is a a mineral found on meteorites. It's not found on Earth. He found iridium in the Yucatan Peninsula where there was a huge meteor crash millions of years ago. And they did a trace on iridium all around the world at this level. And it is now, this is accepted by all of the scientific community, that there was a meteorite crash that caused the extinction of the dinosaurs. There was a catastrophe. Here's why catastrophe, catastrophe is a catastrophe for evolution. Because you lose all of your mutations. You lose all of your advances. A catastrophe wipes everything out. You have to start over again. So you can't have catastrophes. And so this kind of caused a little upheaval. And, but don't worry, they've adjusted and they've, they've still found a way to, to believe what they want to believe. All right, so uh, I, I, I came up with a, a different theory looking at all of the geology. And I was dying to find out what a real geologist professor would say. So I went down to campus and I was looking for the lady that I'd met with the first time and and she was supposed to be back from vacation, and I was waiting for it. I had all of my paperwork and everything, and, and uh, this guy comes out, and he says, can I help you? And I said, I- I'm waiting for Brooke. And he said, she, he said you know what, Brooke's not, gonna, not, Brooke's not even going to be in today. He said, maybe I can help you. Why don't you come into my office? So I go into his office, and, and uh, I, th- I think I'm with a grad student. It turns out I am with Brooke's boss. He's a professor at the UW. He's been, he's been there for seven years. And, uh, and, I, and he says, I don't know how much I'm going to help you. Tell me, what, tell me what you've got. And so I laid out my, my case here. And I said, I said now these, these, tell me if I'm wrong. These are, the, these are the, the facts as we know them. The Pleistocene Age, or Ice Age, ended recently in the last 10,000 years. Two, there were mass extinctions at the end of the Pleistocene Age. So less than 10,000 years ago, there were mass extinctions. 
and the mystery of something called disharmonious associations. And I'm going to just read this from a science book. Ice age fossils often display a strange mix of animals that would not be expected to coexist. Remains of animals adapted to the cold are found much farther south than expected. Warmth-loving animals are found as fossils much farther north than they would venture today. Yet they apparently thrived in the Ice Age environment. This peculiar mixture of animals has been given a special name, disharmonious associations. Disharmonious associations have garnered much controversy. Although difficult to explain, most scientists have now accepted that the disharmonious associations during the Ice Age were are real. The reason for the dilemma is that an, an Ice Age climate is assumed to have been much colder than present-day climates. However, the evidence from the Ice Age fossils instead implies an equable climate with mild winters and cool summers. It is difficult enough to accept that the animals, as well as plants and insects, were disharmonious during the Ice Age. But the scientists are also faced with explaining why this mix of animals came to an abrupt end with mass extinctions at the close of the Ice Age. At a time, the climate was supposed to be warming and the living area expanding. In North America alone, 135 species in 33 genera of large mammal, mammals disappeared. 22 genera of birds went extinct from North America at the end of the Ice Age. Other continents were hit hard with extinctions during and soon after the Ice Age with extinctions um, including South America and Australia. 167 genera of large animals greater than 100 pounds disappeared from entire continents. Why? At about this time, he is very, very interested and he stops me and he says, he says, you know, when you came in here, I was planning on letting you talk and saying, I can't really help you because this isn't my area. Because that's how science works. Science, there's very little accountability between scientific disciplines. You trust that discipline to do their, their job. And he said, but he said, you see these five books on my desk? These are all on the Pleistocene extinctions. He said the professor that trained me is the, is the professor that, that coined disharmonious associations. He said, this is exactly my field. And your, whatever your question is, this is ex- I am an expert, basically. Okay, so uh, I just wanted to read this one Um, geologist description because it's so vivid. The evidence of the... This is in Alaska. The evidence of the violence of nature combined with the stench of rotting carcasses was staggering. The ice fields containing these remains stretched for hundreds of miles in every direction. Trees and animals, layers of peat and mosses, twisted and mangled together like some giant mixer had jumbled them some 10,000 years ago and then froze them into a solid mass. There were mammoths found in both Siberia and Alaska, frozen with all of their fur on, with undigested plant food in their stomachs. Now, they believe for that to happen, 
for that food in their stomach to not decay. This is warm weather food that is found in the stomachs of mammoths that were, they believed the quick freeze was 150 degrees in 24 hours. That's how quick the temperature had to go down. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. (laughs) We know it can happen. That was actually me coming from Florida back up here. So number three. Pleistocene age ended less than 10,000 years ago. Two, we've got all of these extinctions all over the world that we don't understand why they were and why they ended at the end of the Ice Age. And there was a time up to 3,000 years after the Ice Age that is well documented called the Holocene Climate Optimum. Two to 3,000 years where weather was equable all over the globe. The Arctic and Antarctic, they found fruit trees on both sides. They've, this, is, this is well documented. The Sahara Desert has got, used to have all kinds of animals and fruits and vegetables. The, the deserts used to be moist and the poles used to be warm and there was for two to 3,000 years, it's called the Holocene Climate Optimum. So that was number three. And number four, we are now living in the Holocene Age. And no one knows why the Holocene climate optimum ended. Okay, so here's the current theory of the, for these extinctions. Or, or first, let me give you, yeah, here, here's the current theory. The extinctions occurred when things warmed up partly to the climate change. And animals just, they weren't used to the warm weather, so they just died. And partly due to the increased human population that was hunting large animals. That is the extent of the current theory of why these extinctions happen. How that would explain what's going on in Alaska, I don't know how that would possibly. Problems with the current theories. Theory. So you you got to picture me. I'm talking to this guy who's the expert on this. And I'm saying, here's here's the problems. You tell me if I'm wrong, but this is what the problems are. One, it doesn't explain why vegetation did not decompose in the moles of mammoths. Two, doesn't explain why warm weather creatures were all around the mammoths in Siberia and Alaska. Three, doesn't explain how mammoths survived without the glands of today's Arctic animals. Four, it doesn't explain how they survived along a number of other large animals with so little food supply during the Ice Age when elephants today need 300 pounds of food every day. So you got all these large animals that made it through the Ice Age and now finally when it warms up, they all die doesn't make sense. So he said, well, let me say this before you go any farther. Your facts are impeccable. This, these are the known facts. That is the known current theory. And I said, let me, let me tell you my theory, a more plausible theory. Number one, the Pleistocene age ended when God recreated the world less than 10,000 years ago. He created a whole new set of animals and placed them in a moist greenhouse-like climate that we today call the Holocene Climate Optimum. After a few thousand years, God judged the earth with a worldwide flood, which removed some of the moisture in the air, leading to a world of extreme temperatures, cold on the poles and hot in the deserts. And 
to, to understand the flood, it's not just water coming down, guys. It's the, the earth belched up. It would have, the, there would have been clouds and smoke around the earth that would have changed the temperature, especially on the poles, very, very quickly and very dramatically. Number three, mammoths and other animals were killed in the floodwaters, buried in mud, and then quickly froze in the change of climate. Number four, carbon-14 dating can only be independently verified up to 5,000 years. We'll explain that later. I, I would never teach now because we're, we're learning. And he said, what you've got there as a theory. And he said, frankly, it's as good as any theory that I've heard. Now, he got into a little trouble with that when I spoke on campus and we had to dialogue back and forth because he wanted to be very clear. He was not advocating for a Bible view of things or trying to explain it. But here's my point. You can be very intelligent and still believe this word of God. You don't have to be non-scientific to believe the Bible. You don't have to put your head and say, I can't think about science because I'm a, I'm a Christian. God does not want us to be intimidated by the scientific community. Do we know everything? No. Is this the exact way things happen? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's young earth. Maybe all the old earth stuff is wrong. We don't know. But Christians don't need to hang their heads as if they have sold out their intellect and committed intellectual suicide to believe the Bible. All right. We are at five minutes to eight, why don't we stand, take a two-minute break, five-minute break, go to the bathroom, get a drink. If you want to come back in, um, we'll do questions and answers from eight to 8.30. In other words, the geologic column would display, and from a scientific standpoint, death and corruption. And if there was death, whether it be from a catastrophic event that happened prior to Adam, uh -huh. then that has to be dealt with scripturally because of course the you know the bible states that through man came death through adam came death so death had to exist prior to that if the geologic column exists oh right i'm absolutely like i said um in in the new creation if indeed this is a new creation and it's about mankind and then adam and eve are the ones that brought sin and death into the world and so you're absolutely right that there was sin and death in the world long before that through Lucifer and his angels and there was a judgment and, uh, and we don't know anything about it. We don't know. Biblically, we know nothing about it. We know in this current world where God, I believe, restored the earth that sin came into this world and death through Adam and Eve. But there was sin and death before that. 
because of Lucifer and that fall and a lot of stuff we don't know about. I guess I'm having trouble justifying that by Scripture. It it doesn't seem to be there. Let's put it that way. Um, And the other problem it also creates is any 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 catastrophe of the type that you speak of, whether it be a flood or whatever, would have destroyed that column or would have certainly altered it immensely. Um, None of the theories really stand up to... Ex, you know, strict examination, right. and, and I guess yeah, that's part of, part of the problem with the geologic column is that it really it, it is kind of imagination. Charles Lyell made it, and it was how he imagined it, and he said that he said we we don't really see this, but we're going to imagine it, and so uh, to catastrophes, you're absolutely right. Mess up the geologic column; they throw it all around, and so. It, it's really hard to make, a, and, and so our geology books that have it layered, and this is here, and this is here, and this is here. It's it's really not fair. And so, so. The, the death that Christ came then to redeem, though, is specifically the death that was a result of Adam's sin, and has nothing to do with any death. Absolutely prior to that. nothing related to anything. I believe it was a new creation. I believe that it was a new beginning, okay. and. It was called the beginning by Jesus. I believe right. Lucifer was already Satan, and he it, okay. and it was from the beginning, from our beginning, and so and this last, this book is about us. Right. And just one last thing. Yeah, you're aware there's limiting factors to the age of the Earth. That if the Earth was as old as it is, these limiting factors would change the way things are today. The moon wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have a magnetic field. Um, Things of that nature. I'm, I've read all of the, the young earth arguments for... I mean, is yeah. there an, do you have... Or I mean, is there an answer that, would you, you would, that satisfies you to that? Where was like it was re, everything recreated, I guess, at that, at that time then. Um, well, the six-day recreation, so to speak, then the... I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I don't have any good answers. Okay. Thanks. I like that this is let's talk about evolution. Not let's solve it. I just thought I'd share that. <laughs> don't you? Don't you love Dave? <laughs> I gave you that um, brochure there. Oh, use use the microphone, Curtis. I love you as brothers in Christ, and I would not be remiss if I didn't speak up about. My convictions on the validity of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. Please hear my heart as I am not trying to preach at anyone, just sharing what the Lord has laid on my heart. I have typed up my findings so I do not misquote anything. I don't want to misquote something and start a new theory. There are many different positions in Christendom on the age of the earth. The reason there are so many different positions on Genesis, whether it is the gap theory, the day-age view, progressive creation, theistic evolution, Adam as a metaphor for Israel, cosmic temple view, the framework hypothesis, historic creation, and so on, is because of man's attempts at fitting millions of years into the Bible. Every single one of these positions undermines the authority of the Word of God. Let's take a look at just one of these, the gap theory, and let's break it down. According to Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible, the word gap appears only once in the Bible, in Ezekiel 2230. 
I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. So there's your word gap. Let's look at the word theory. According to the World Book Dictionary, the definition is number one, an explanation. Two, an explanation based on thought. Three, an explanation based on observation and reasoning, especially one that has been tested and confirmed as a general principle explaining a large number of related facts. Now let's look at theorize. That means to form a theory or theories, or to speculate. You can see from these meanings that the gap theory is not a proven fact. Exegesis is a scholarly explanation or interpretation of the Bible or a passage of the Bible. Eisegesis, is, in contrast, is a reading of one's own ideas into a passage of the Bible or slanted or biased biblical exegesis. Christian leaders and academics who believe millions of years are represented in Genesis are really bringing in a belief from outside of Scripture and reading it into Scripture. This is an example of eisegesis. The first major attempt to harmonize a biblical account of creation with the idea of vast ages in our modern era of history, beginning in the 1800s, was known as the gap theory. Proponents of this view claim that a huge gap of time, perhaps several billion years, exists between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. There are different versions of the gap theory, but the most popular version is the ruin and reconstruction idea, which claims that during the supposed gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, Satan supposedly ruled the earth and led a rebellion against God. As a result, God destroyed this original creation with a flood called Lucifer's Flood. After the ruin of the original creation, this version of the gap theory states that God recreated everything in six days. Does the Hebrew grammar allow for a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2? According to Hebrew scholars, time cannot be inserted between verses 1 and 2 because verse 2 does not follow verse 1 in time. Verse 2 uses a Hebrew grammatical device called a wah disjunctive. That's W-A-W disjunctive. A wah disjunctive indicates that the sentence is describing the previous one. It does not follow in time. Under the principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture, this passage clearly does not allow for vast periods of time between any of the days of creation. The last issue is that most versions of the gap theory put death, thorns, carnivory, disease like cancer and suffering from the fossil record long before Adam's sin. Day appears for the first time in Genesis 1-5. The Hebrew word for day is yam, and you mentioned that. Yam can have a number of different meanings just as day does. The brown driver brings Hebrew and English lexicon, which is a classic well-respected Hebrew-English lexicon, has seven headings and many subheadings for the meaning of yam. But it defines the creation days of Genesis 1 as ordinary days under the heading days defined by evening and morning. The word yam occurs in Scripture 2,304 times. In Genesis 1-5, yam occurs in context with the word night. Outside of Genesis 1, night is used with yam 52 times. And each time it means an ordinary day. Why would Genesis 1 be the exception? Another source we can turn to for answers to the questions of how the word yam is used in Scripture is the Theological Dictionary. The Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament 
quotes that from its outset in, at creation, Genesis 1, 3 through 5, Yom is a full day, had the same beginning as Yom in the narrower sense, namely morning. In other words, in Genesis 1, the days of creation were lit, are literal days with a period of daylight and a period of darkness. Genesis is intended to be read as literal history, so we can safely assume that Yom in Genesis 1 refers to normal length days. In order to fully understand the use of Yom in the opening chapter of the Bible, we need to examine what other parts of the scripture have to say about it. In Exodus, we read that God commanded Moses to say to the children of Israel, and this is, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. That's Exodus thirty-one seventeen. Moses' clear belief that the days of creation were normal length days is reaffirmed in Exodus twenty eleven, which you quoted before. The fourth commandment. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. If the Bible scholars and church leaders do not return to the authority of God's word in the first chapters of Genesis, the entire gospel message is undermined. Satan knows that if he can get generations of people to doubt and not believe the word, then ultimately they will reject the gospel that comes from that word. I heard on the radio just the other day that by their second year in college, about 80% of the church-raised students have dropped out of church For them, the word was compromised. Let us listen to God speaking to us through his word. I think think that uh, City Church, I've been thinking this for a long time, I never never approached anybody about it, but we should have, and uh, creation uh, evolutionists, I mean creation uh, speakers here at at church to give a seminar and and, uh, expose us to their thoughts. We can... Accepted or, or rejected, but I think that uh, I think they they uh, should have a voice in our in our, in our church and have have a chance to uh, uh, to speak. We have there's a number of speakers that come here for a day, come here for uh, for a weekend, and 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 give a seminar. And there's a lot of good good information out there, and and they have a lot of information to back up their uh, back up their 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 uh, beliefs. And I think that's uh, we should all be exposed to it. Curtis, I I really appreciate you, and I appreciate... Curtis is a pillar in this church, and I'm really glad that your voice was heard here tonight. And we did, just had Jay Siegert here at ALCS, teaching Young Earth, exposing our kids to that. Um, So uh, I honor you and appreciate you, and so thank you for sharing what you had. Okay, over here, John. Yeah, um, my question is going to be a lot more simplistic than what I just heard. Um, So um, I'm just kind of wondering this. Um, I usually hear a comment um, back in my day, and I know that that didn't mean 24 hours ago. (laughs) They're usually referring to some unspecified time period in the past. Sure. And I'm just wondering um, why wasn't... That uh, apparently brought up in your discussion with uh, whoever this expert was um, as one of your points as far as um, 
um, how does science deal with this? Day, day being longer than 24 yeah, hours? Day, a day, know, yeah. Not being constrained. Yeah, the, the day hours. age, the day age theory actually says just that, that a day can be mean a longer use of time. And Curtis has pointed out that evening and morning are listed with it, um, which would reduce it to 24 hours, which I actually believe that because I, I do believe in the gap theory, but that's fine. Um, but the day age people would point out, okay, it's unfair to use that yom with all the other yams in the Bible because the sun isn't even there until day four. And if the sun's not there, then evening and morning, which are about a solar day, why would they have to be solar days if the sun isn't even there? And can't evening and morning be a God-sized day? And so that, that is the argument that they make for day being longer than, than that. So, yeah. We're good, bro. Oh, go ahead, bro. You know, um, this day, and then the Israelites know that he's referring to a, a time period. Right, right. Or just like the day of salvation. We're still in the day of salvation. So it, it day can be used for a longer period of time. All right, over here. Just a couple things. Uh, well, you know, going back to the day and that, uh, you know, I mean, before anything was even created... You know, I mean, God was up there, and uh, you know, for His intent and and vision and idea, you know, to put forth, you know, a planet that you know could sustain life in in you know His image, yeah, was amazing right there. Uh, stunning. Yeah, stunning, and you know. Yeah, doing all the geological records and all that kind of stuff, you know, he had that in mind too, you know, for us to slowly peel off those layers uh, as we are doing now. The layers that hasn't been peeled off, which he may have erased, was, you know, that first earth, you know, layers that you were talking about were. Satan was here, you were saying and ruled, you know, would there have been a, you know, a geological layer there that, of course, nobody has even tapped into, you know. So, you know, that's, that's one of those, you know, questions about, you know, that gap and all that kind of stuff. It's like, well, it, if, if there's something it that... It raises more questions than yeah, it answers. Sure. It, it truly does. Yeah. Um, the, the idea, though, that were you done, bro, or not? Yeah. Um, the first time that I recognized that there was a, a, a... Here's what I noticed. The first time I read the Old Testament. I, I, I wasn't even a Christian. But I was stunned because what I noticed was not created during the six days was the earth. The earth was already there. The earth's already there before the six days. God never said, let there be an earth. The earth is already there. There's water over the earth. And on day one, God creates light. And so uh, the idea that I, that I 
found out what science said and tried to add thousands of years. That is absolutely not the case. Uh, this is from the first time I read it. I realized the earth's already there before the six days. So what's up with that? I don't know. So, okay. Hi. I, um, I just wanted to respond to the, the death before sin question. Um, I, I, I've made um, this study of evolution, creation, and all the different things. It's very, very important to me for many, many years. And um, if there's one thing I'm adamant about, it's that, you know, that God did it that we need to have, like as you said, charity among each other and trying to figure out how the Bible fits with discoveries of science and, um, and view it as a non-essential of the faith, just like I do my views of eschatology. Amen. And um, so, but just, um, if I may respond to the, the death thing, I think sometimes um, the verse that's used... Uh, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, um, sometimes we don't read the whole verse, which is, and in this way, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So proponents of the, like the day-age theory, <clears throat> would respond um, that this is specifically pointing to the death of men, not necessarily death of animals. And why else would Paul point out death happening through, you know, to just men? That's the response they would make. And I just wanted to clear, you know, to, to bring that out for everybody to know. Um, I'm not trying to give one opinion over the other, but um, I'm kind of familiar with the different viewpoints. And I just wanted to be fair to that viewpoint. Thank you, Tom. Mm-hmm. Tom is the science teacher over at ALCS, so... Very, you just very like you just like his name. Researched and tremendous blessing. Thank you, sir. Hi, um, you've made me think about science, and I've spent my life avoiding science. So, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> and I have two master's degrees, but I I'm allergic to this. But you made me think about carbon. Um, so my question is uh, two questions, kind of. Number one just clarification of the gap theory are you saying that the first verse in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth are you saying that that is referring to god created the original the, the original creation and then which the we rest, know almost nothing about and then there's a gap and then the and then cre- i'm saying the sixth, that the earth became tohu vabohu okay and so you're talking about a redeemed earth a redeemed earth okay yep. i just was curious and less then my than se- ten thousand years ago that there was a redeemed earth okay and that makes sense to me. I, I, and, and so my second question is more, you kind of highlighted some, some different, some sort of competing theories, but how many are there out there? And where can you, I guess I'm a person that likes to kind of read, and now that this has been revealed to me, now I want to read more about each theory. <laughs> so like, how do, where, how many are out there, some, or major somebody, ones? Somebody came into my office last week and said that there are five main theories. Okay. And so certainly theistic evolution would be one. Mm-hmm. Day-age theory, which is special creation it's not an evolutionary theory. It's day age that God created each thing at a time. And then there's young earth and gap. And there's a fifth one because that person told me there was, but I don't know what it is. Okay. Okay. Thanks. 
theistic evolution. Yep. Uh, did I not mention that one? Okay. Okay. I have a question or a comment. I don't know. So if you take with the advent of computers and um, a lot of fancy machines that we use in the lab to, to address some of these questions. So a lot of the genomes of many species have been completely sequenced, including the human genome, by yep. precisely by Francis by the, Collins, Francis yep. Collins, who you cited, who was at the National Institute of Health, who is, I think, still. Um, if you take the, oh, a lot of those sequences, they are put up in databases, yep. in computers. And then you can take those sequences of the different organisms and align them using very fancy software. And it will take you the percent similarity that, that those sequences have a, across the board in terms of organisms. And if you go to a scientific conference um, in biology, probably at least once, one of those evolutionary trees will show up right. showing you right. the similarities yep. and all of that stuff. Yep. Um, so how would you explain that in the context of macroevolution? Is, is that like a... Right. And I'm not, I'm not trying to, to refute anybody. I no, just have a no, question. No, um, Is that a proof for it? Is that not a proof for it? And what do we do with it? Well, biologists think this is the silver bullet. That, look, yes. the DNA is so similar in all of these things that clearly... Um, Evolution is true. Correct. Um, just because God, uh, for one thing, God says he made us all out of the, the dirt. So the fact that our bodies are similar and made out of the same stuff should not surprise us biblically. It's, we should be very, very similar. Um, the, the fact that God used DNA to make everything doesn't mean that it evolved. Just like if somebody is using cement and they make a golf path and they make a sidewalk and they make a highway because cement works in a number of different ways. That doesn't mean that the golf path came first and then over a lot of time evolved a sidewalk and then it evolved a highway. It's, it's the designer used cement. <laughs> And he, de he designed several different things with cement. And so God used DNA and he used DNA to create all things. And so, yes, if bodies are similar, then there's going to be more similarity in the DNA. But that doesn't mean that, that they evolved. So I guess that's how I would respond to it. John. Uh, the DNA problem is that, uh, well, we eat plants and trees. If the DNA isn't reasonably similar, it would be toxic. Hello. And the same with the, with the animals that we eventually eat, not after the, after the first few days or so. Uh, that animal matter has to also be compatible with us or we'll find it toxic. Or we'd implode. Well, I don't know if we'll implode, but... <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say that word because it's kind of a cool <laughs> word. Amen. I just had a question about uh, how do we balance this as far as uh, I certainly respect you know, what we've been talking about, but Curtis brought up a point earlier about how if people can discredit 
maybe our biblical view of creation, they can discredit the gospel. How much, I guess my question is, uh, how much time do we spend talking about these issues versus maybe talking about, hey, we need to move over here, really, and talk about that all have sinned, oh. Jesus Christ died oh, for my. our sins, we need to receive faith, him. Faith is not built on non-essentials. Faith is not built on the stuff that you, you're, not really, you're not sure about. Faith is built on what we do know. We know that Jesus loves us. We know that Jesus died on the cross. We know that he rose from the dead. But the idea that somebody couldn't have faith in the Bible because they are scientific and I believe in, in evolution, uh, well, I want to talk to that person. What, 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 are you, do you saying that you have faith in naturalism? Are you, th- are, are you saying you're scientific because you believe in evolution? Or is it only naturalism? And let's look at facts. And... See, there are people out there that think that they can't believe the Bible because of science or because of what scientists have said. And just having, they're just so used to nobody even questioning them. And Bible people are afraid to talk because they've got their own narrow view and they believe the Bible and I don't want to hear anything about science. And it's amazing, like even this professor that I met with down there, I had forgotten something the first time I was there. She, she was with George, and I forgot. I think it was my briefcase I forgot. And I went back the next day, and she was alone. I wasn't going to ask her about her faith while he was there because I didn't want to embarrass her. But when I went back, she was alone. And I got to talk to her about her faith. And she told me about her faith journey and where it had gotten off. And it was a, just a powerful time. But that bridge was made because I had shown her respect and we could talk about the same things and she couldn't lump me into Christians that are afraid about anything scientific that that it built a bridge and that's that's all this does it doesn't make us experts it doesn't it's this isn't to win an argument this is to say rational people have there's there's different ways to look at what happened in Genesis 1 and 2 and But the main event is Jesus Christ and that we're sinners and that God loves us and that he died for us. And that's what we talk about. So it's almost eight. It's almost 830. Okay. Uh, One more. One more. And then we will stand and pray. Yeah, I guess um, one thing you you said time and time again, Tom, is that uh, God is on a need to know basis. And really, what massive knowledge do we have and what massive knowledge do the scientists have? Jesus came down from heaven to show himself at our level that we could reason with him, he would reason with us, and we could trust in him, um, and he's showing his love for us. Um, As far as human being to human being, scientists have their failings. There's true science, which really is observable, that's provable, that's testable. There is science that is theoretical, there's stuff out there that is just wacko. But... What we need to show, be transparent. We don't know everything. They don't know everything. If we can come to common ground there, then we can talk about Jesus does know. That's right. And then we can trust in, if you, if you trust in Jesus, you can trust that the word of God is correct. We might not understand all of it. We may only get to understand a certain portion of it. There may be stuff we'll have to ask God. But uh, the thing is to come to a, a point of common ground that you can give the gospel message with a person. And that's about your humility versus their you know, their information. Let's yeah. get, let's get real about what we really know and what we can really say. It's good. It's really good, bro.
You know, and, and the idea of what should be taught in schools, I'm not a big proponent that we should be teaching intelligent design in school. I'm saying let's leave all faith-based things out of the school, and that absolutely includes evolution. Evolution is a faith in naturalism, and it's theology. It has nothing to do with science, and it shouldn't be taught in the schools. And so I'm not trying to get intelligent design in. I, I would prefer macroevolution to be out. And let's just have do science in school instead of theory, theological theories of how all things came to be. So, well, there you go. You didn't even ask for that. All right, could we, could we stand together? Lord, thank you so much for loving us. Lord, thank you that we don't have to understand all of these things to love Jesus. And Lord, I have sought to honor your word tonight. I've sought to honor it the way I see it, the way I believe it, and I appreciate others that see it differently and have strong feelings about it, and those have been shared too. God, I pray that all of us can go home tonight feeling like we talked. We, we talked about things and we had different opinions and it's okay to talk and agree to disagree. And God, I pray that fear, and especially fear of the unknown, would not rule us. Fear of non-Christians and people that are smart would not intimidate us. Lord, I pray that we would walk in simple faith with you and that you would keep us, God, in that place. Now, Lord, bless us and uh, make us a blessing wherever we go from here. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks so much for coming.